0: All right, amen, my name is Kyle, welcome, good morning. Uh, Whether you're watching online or in the lobby or in here, you can type to, turn to, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Scroll to, swipe to, find your way to that book. As you do, let me just give you an update. Look around, I know I say this every Sunday, I say this every service. We are out of space, look around. (laughs) We, We have capacity issues. Okay, we added a Saturday night service about, I guess it's two months ago now, and that was the answer to a problem or a question, which is how do we temporarily increase our capacity. Uh, And and I wanna just say, we've had many people move to that service. And if you can move to that service for a season, it would be a huge blessing to our church. Uh, But that's a temporary answer to the question, what do we do? Because here's, let me just say this real quickly. If we don't have a seat for someone, uh, that means we don't have a place for someone. If we don't have a place for someone, we can't disciple them. And so for the last, well, really in many ways, for the last 18 months, we've been saying, God, where do you have us next? And I told you and I shared with you that we found eight and a half acres in downtown in 2021. It's unbelievable. With fear and trembling, we're like, God, what are you doing to open up that much land, that much property in such a key, key part of the city in 2021? And then about a month ago, we gathered our members together. We have, we believe in meaningful membership here. And so, you know, many of you were there. We gathered all of our members together and just to celebrate what God's done and where God's leading us next. And one of the things, by the way, that we celebrated is that our budget this year, just so you know, it grew from two and a half million, which was a great budget, to four and a half million in one year. That is not normal. Yeah, you can clap for, I mean, really. Let me just, let me explain that to you. How does that happen? Here's how that happens. It's families, our church is built on families who have decided to put the church and the kingdom of God first in their finances. That's it, that's how that happens. It didn't happen by one or two new people who gave a big gift coming to our church. It came by middle class families who said, I'm gonna put the kingdom of God first in our finances and I just wanna say thank you. It fuels and funds everything that we do. Guys, we are launching. So we, had, we said, hey, here's where we're going next. We took our members together. We said, guys, we've got eight and a half acres, and here's the plan, and here's the project. And guess what they all said? A- yes and amen. I mean, that's really what they said. Over 99% approval, and so we are moving forward. In fact, one person who came to the members meeting, they said, they said I've never been to a members gathering like that. They said it was part State of the Union address, <laughs> part pep rally, part family gathering. And I said, that's exactly it, Yes. And so guys, what we're doing is two weeks from today, you don't wanna miss it, okay? We're launching the Forward series. It's going to be the most important, impactful, and influential series in the life of our church. And if you're watching online, this would be an incredible time for you to come back or for you to come back consistently. Because I'm just telling you guys, we are going to unpack everything. We're gonna look at the book of Acts and how the first church moved forward. And we're gonna be telling you guys and sharing with you guys how we believe God is leading us forward in this next season, we're going to show you a special video we're going to give you a special book and uh, it's going to be an incredible series let me take a moment pray for that series and then we're going to dive into first corinthians 10 lord i thank you for what you're doing i really do i want to honor you jesus thank you for opening up and opening up eight and a half acres in downtown in the fifth largest city in north carolina in 2021 lord and it is a issue of stewardship and it it's also a great issue of joy lord that we wanna move move together uh, and, and forward together as a church family to build a future home and hub on that property, Lord, that would help us to go deeper in discipleship and wider in mission, Lord. I thank you for the generosity of our church. I thank you for the unity of our church. Pray this in your name, amen. All right, if you guys are gonna type two, turn to 1 Corinthians 10, okay? We're gonna spend all of our time just in 14 verses. Some of you like to take notes. You wanna know ahead of time, how much text are we covering? What are we covering? Uh, here's what you need to know. Paul loved the local church. So the whole reason that we have this letter, First Corinthians, we're in chapter 10 today, but the reason we have this letter is because Paul loves the church. And Paul believes that the hope of any city is a good, healthy local church. That's it. So if you go, how would I pray for the city of Winston? You pray for the Christians and you pray for the church in the city. How do you pray for San Francisco? You pray for the Christians and you pray for the church in San Francisco. And this is incredibly important because we believe that every church needs more and more good gospel preaching churches. And is this not important? In in 2021, the average American has lost their mind, (laughs) right? Really, the average American has lost their mind and that's okay, that's okay because the church is here. We're gonna be an attractive alternative, we're gonna be a distinct and different community, we're gonna be a counterculture, and there's gonna be people, and they're gonna wake up from the slumber that they have been in for the last 18 months, or who knows how long will this all last, two years, three years, and they're gonna go, what did I do with my life? What have I been doing for the last few years? We know that pornography use is up, we know that alcohol consumption is up, we know that domestic abuse is up, we know that people are isolated, depressed, anxious, and are not doing well, and the church is gonna be here. And so, but Paul is saying in these 14 verses, and this is what we're going to cover today, he's going to go, guys, he says, guys, you need to be a healthy local church because the city is depending on you. And so one of the things he's going to confront today is that they're worshiping the wrong things. This is the temptation of the church to worship wrongly or to worship the wrong things. Let me, let me tell you where we're going. There's a big idea today in this text and in this sermon that I want you to get, and if you only take, if you only write down one thing on your phone or memorize one thing, maybe this is what you want to memorize, um, <clears throat> that you are a worshiper and you are a sinner. So you got to go, those, those would be two things that are true about you, right? You're a worshiper. You're a sinner. Therefore, this is so helpful, and we'll get here today, we'll try to, uh, is that your deepest problem, therefore, is always a worship problem. That makes sense. If your primary identity is as a worshiper, I mean, think about what happens. I know not all of us know the Bible really well, but if you go to Genesis one and two, don't turn there now, but Genesis one and two, Adam and Eve, God creates them, and what are they? What are they? They're they worshipers, and here's the truth. Every person is a worshiper. I'm not just saying every Christian. Every human being, every person that you will ever meet when you leave here and you go to lunch, every person that you see is always, only continuously worshiping. You don't get to choose you don't get to choose whether or not you're going to worship. You get to choose this. So this is your choice. What will you worship or who will you worship? And this is it, guys. You have to get this. So we're worshipers, but then we're sinners. So Genesis 1 and 2 says you're a worshiper. Genesis 3 says, uh-oh, we're sinners too, which means that the temptation is to worship wrongly or to worship the wrong thing, right? I mean, how many of us, I mean, it's sports season, right? How many people worship college football? I, there was this lady, so I heard a guy, he goes to India, and he says, like he couldn't he couldn't handle all the idolatry in India. He said there was he saw people worshiping these gods and going into these temples. And he met this missionary lady who's been living in India for years. And he said, uh, he said I can't handle the idolatry here. And she goes, well I'll never go to America again because I can't handle your idolatry. And she goes, what? he goes, what are you talking about? Our idolatry? She says your football stadiums, your restaurants everywhere, your TV screens everywhere. I can't handle the idolatry. And you start to realize, oh, maybe it's just, maybe idolatry for us is things we've gotten used to and we can't see it anymore. So he's going to say, you're a worshiper and you're a sinner. So your your, temptation is for you to worship your spouse instead of your savior, your kids instead of the king of kings, your job instead of Jesus. And so in these 14 verses, Paul's going to do this. And here's what he's doing. In verses one through four, if you want kind of an outline, he's going to basically say, guys, this has happened before. He's going to tell the story of Israel. And he's gonna talk about the Old Testament. He's gonna say, guys, listen, this is good for us to know. You're not unique. Your story's not special, okay? You're not a snowflake. That's kind of what he's gonna say. Uh, that, that, uh, that lots of people, this is good to know, right? Because most people think, oh, we're so prideful, especially Americans, especially millennials. We think nobody's lived before us. Nobody's ever struggled with this. I'm unique. I'm special. My situation's different. And Paul's gonna go, no, this is where this always leads, Um, He's actually going to say, life is too painful and life is too short to learn everything by experience, so you better learn from the past. And then he's going to warn us about idolatry and worship and temptation. And here's what temptation is. You may want to write this down. Temptation is an invitation to worship the wrong thing. So you're going to go, why is he putting, he's putting temptation with idolatry? And you're like, well, well, let's look at all of it together, okay? Because this is, it's complex, but it's really good. Let's look at verse one, if you'll look at me at verse one, he says this. For I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers. So, so I've told you this before, but, but often our greatest problem is either what we don't know or what we won't know. So what you don't know might be your greatest problem, right? There's pain and there's pressure and you're suffering more than you need to because there's things that you don't know. That happens all the time to people. It's what you don't know. This is what, why do we meet weekly? Why has the church been doing this for 2000 years? So that you will not be unaware. If you show up weekly, you're coming for years, you're going to hear, we go book by book through the Bible, all of a sudden you're going to go, I didn't know things that I now know, and I'm more faithfully and fruitfully following Jesus because of it. But some, for some of you, it's what you continually won't know. And that's different. You go, how does that make sense? Well, there's what you don't know, that's ignorance. There's what you won't know, it's what you continue to push down and suppress. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share some things with you, and some of you are going to say this. I mean, you're not going to say it out loud, you're going to say it to yourself, you're going to say, I read knew." I already knew that about idolatry. That's not new, Kyle. I knew that about temptation. And the answer, respectfully, is then why aren't you applying it? Right? We're only as mature as our obedience. We believe here in obedience-based discipleship, not knowledge-based discipleship. What makes us mature is not how much we know, but how much we're obeying of what we know. So Paul says, guys, you guys, I want you to know this story. And then here's the story, he says. It's a story from the Old Testament. If you look at me, it says, continue on verse uh, one. He says, that our fathers, so he's talking about our spiritual fathers. He's talking about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He's particularly talking about the story of the Exodus, which we studied here uh, probably two years ago now. He says this, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So they were also led by the Lord. The cloud, I can't get into this too much, was a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he led them cloud by day, fire by night. It was the leadership and the protection of the Lord. He says, and then they passed through the sea. That was a picture of baptism. He says this, verse two, and they were all baptized into Moses. That means they were immersed into the life and leadership of a godly guy. So here's what he's saying. Guys, listen, this has happened before. let Let me bring it down to us. He's saying, guys, listen, you were part of a great church. You were under great leadership. You had a great pastor. You had a great community group leader. You had a great staff team. You got to experience amazing things. I mean, look what he says next. He says, "And they all ate the same spiritual food." That was a type of the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament. It was, it was the manna, kind of, was 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 pointing to and picturing God's provision spiritually and physically. Verse four. And they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. So I can't get into this too much here, but you see, Paul understands and interprets the Old Testament with Christ at the very center of it. He said Christ was there. Now, but here's, here's what's interesting, and this is, this is where we need to really focus in, is verse five. He says this. This is where he's trying to get, on, get their attention. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that there was, there was three things that happened. He said, first of all, the people, he said, they were saved by the Egyptians. All of Israel was saved out of Egypt. And that's a picture of our salvation. He's saying that basically they were were saved from their enemies. They were saved from slavery. He said, secondly, they were all walked through the sea. It was a picture of baptism. They all made a public profession of faith. He said, but here's what happened. He said, most of the people who were saved out of Egypt never made it to the promised land. That's the point Paul's making. Now, the promised land doesn't mean heaven in this situation. He's not saying they lost their salvation. Promised land was where you lived out the mission. Promised land was where you experienced the promises of God. The promised land was the place where you lived out the purposes of God. And what he's saying, and this is what I hope you'll hear today and you'll take seriously because part of the problem of Christians is we don't take the warnings of the Bible seriously. This is a massive warning. Paul's saying that what keeps most Christians in the wilderness, I'm speaking here metaphorically, and never really having the impact and the influence that you need to have on your family, and never really having the impact and the influence that you need to be having on your friends and, on, and in your college campus, is that you give in to temptation, and you worship the wrong things. And there's so many good deeds that are left undone because you aren't worshiping God rightly. And so what he's saying is in verse six, he says this. Now these things took place as examples for us. So he's saying, which is the Old Testament, they, they were examples so that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul says, and, I, and I've told you this before, that the Bible gives us visions and countervisions. And you believe me, you need this. You, a vision is something to run toward and a countervision is something to run away from. And life is so hard and temptation is so serious that you actually need both. You need something to run toward and you need something to run away from. In fact, the Bible oftentimes will give us a ton of vision, counter-vision examples. So, right, think, what is Cain and Abel, right? It's the second oldest story in your Bible and it's a vision, counter-vision story. Who are you gonna be like? Are you gonna be like Abel? Are you gonna be the great brother who makes the sacrifice to the Lord and gives his first and his best and his only? Or are you going to be bitter and resentful and revengeful? Those are your two options. Do you want to see where they lead? Vision, countervision. The, the, the whole Old Testament hinges in many ways on the story between King David and King Saul. What is that a story of? I know what it's a story of. You know it, it's a story of vision and countervision. Do you want to be like David? Do you want to have a man after God's own heart? Or do you want to be like Saul? Do you, how about the New Testament? Do you want to be Judas or do you want to be Peter? I mean, that's the story. They both betray Christ. The difference is one repents and one doesn't. That's it. It's vision, counter vision for our lives, guys. And so you'll see this. If you're honest, some of you will see this with your family. Like, I don't want to be like my dad. And you hate to say that out loud. That's a terrible thing to say. But people feel that all the time. I don't want to be like my dad, or I don't want to be like my mom. I don't want to be like my aunts. Well, okay. By the grace of God, that's something to run away from. And then you need something to run toward. So look what he says in verse six. He talks about idolatry. Look at verse six here. Here's what he says. Or, sorry, verse seven. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were As it is written, and this, by the way, is a direct quote from Exodus 32. So if you're with your community group, if you want to read the story, it's in Exodus chapter 32. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Um, It's the story of idolatry, and I I want to, the best I can with the time that I've got, I want to talk to you guys in depth, as deep as I can take us about idolatry and temptation and give us the tools and resources we're going to need. So here's what he does. He tells us the story of the golden calf. And it's a really interesting story because you look at it and you go, okay, that's interesting. Why did they make a calf? Well, if you read the story very, very carefully, they hoped the calf would save them. This, by the way, is what what we think with all of our idols. We think our idol, we think a boyfriend can save us. We think the right education, you wonder why do people just obsess about their education? They think it can save them. If I get into this school, here's what this means. It means I can get this job. It means I can make this money. It means I can live in this house. We believe idols can save us. Now, why the calf? Well, We don't know all the reasons for that. Obviously, it was sacrificial. They gave gold, right? And, and that's always, there's always sacrifice with worship. If you want to go, what do I worship? Look what you sacrifice. Most people sacrifice their health or their relationship with their spouse or their family. They'll sacrifice those things for an addiction, something they worship, for a career, something they worship. And so what Paul is saying is, they had, here's why they had the calf there, because the calf was strong. The calf, that's what it symbolized. The calf represented strength. And so they thought, okay, it usually what our idols do is they... They're, they're a picture of one of God's attributes, one of the things that we think God, uh, that we, we're not getting from God, we're looking for in an idol. So let me, let me talk to us uh, as best I can about idolatry, but let's do it by looking at the next verse, verse 8. He says this. He says, we must not. So remember, in verse 7, he's talking about idolatry. In verse 8, he says this. We must not indulge in sexual morality. And you go, Paul, what are you talking about? Is the issue idolatry or is the issue sexual sin? And what's Paul's answer? Yes. <laughs> right? He says this, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. This is another warning that we probably don't take seriously. And 23,000 fell in a single day. That word is so important, indulge. What is your idol? Your idol is what you indulge in, right? I mean, there's people who it's like, they, they go to church, that's fine. They'll go to community group, but what they indulge in is following football, Right? There's people who great, great. I'll show up. I'll sing a few songs. I'll serve. What we indulge in is our next vacation, right? Some of us that that, that those are maybe easier examples. Some of us indulge in pornography, and I've talked to people before, and they go, "I don't get it. I won't look at it, and then I'll look at it for four hours straight. It's indulging. I won't drink, and then I'll just drink and drink and drink. It's indulging. It's where my heart goes. Here's what he's saying." Underneath, and this is this is what I hope to help us with and hope to help myself with. Underneath our sins are idols. And we can't deal with some of us are like, why am I struggling? Right? Some of you are still in the wilderness. You're like, I'm still addicted to pornography to the same extent. I still self-medicate. I'm still sinfully angry all the time. I'm still resentful and bitter. I just can't do it. And I've been, my mother did it, my grandmother did it. You're in the cul-de-sac of your life. Do, 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 right? Just back. You're in the same place doing the same things. I wanna help you. I wanna help us from scripture. What are the idols underneath the sins? That's what Paul's saying. Underneath the sin of sexual morality was an idol. Let me give you the four main idols. There are four main idols. And, and they're different for each person what we might struggle with. They're approval, comfort, control, and power. These theologians have spent a lot of time thinking about this. What are the four main idols? Some call them source idols or core idols. And here's what this means. Let me try to explain this best I know how. Um, somebody may struggle with a sin, uh, but the idol underneath it might be very, very different. So let's say somebody who's greedy and wants to just make a ton of money. It's like, well, what is, you might go, okay, greed. How do, how do you fight against greed? Well, you actually have to get to the source idol. Like, what's the issue? Let me give you an example. A lot of guys. They don't have good relationships with their dad, and so one of the ways that they hope to maybe impress their dad or to earn their dad's respect is that they might make a lot of money, that dad might pay attention to me. So what's that about? Approval, right? Some people feel like, I need to make a lot of money because it's a status thing, and I need people to approve of me. Other people might go, I don't care about that at all. I don't care what other people think about me. The reason that I want to be greedy and I want to make a lot of money is because I'd like to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. That's why I want financial freedom. What is that? Power. If I had money, it would open up doors. I don't care if they like me or not. I want to be near powerful people. I want to be in the room where it happens. To quote Hamilton, okay? Um, (laughs) You know, that's it. So it's like, okay, for other people, it's like, no, no, no. It's actually my issue is the reason I want money is... I grew up with this massive standard of living that my parents gave me. And I need comfort. And if I don't, if I don't make enough money, I can't live in the house I want to live in. I can't buy the things that I want to live in. I can't take the vacations that I want to take. It's about comfort. Other people, we don't even know how much money they have because they save it all. It's hidden in accounts and 401ks and you know investment stocks and all that. And you go, what's the issue with that? Control. I need to have an enormous amount of money. And so nothing, whatever storm comes, I'm ready. I can afford it and I can pay for it. And this is, by the way, why, why people will, couples will often fight about money. It's like they actually have different idols, right? The saver always marries the spender, right? And the, and the, and the spender's going, I want to spend. I want comfort, right? And the, And the other spouse goes, we need to save. I want control. Worship my idol. No, worship my idol. <laughs> that's what happens. How about sex, right? How many women give themselves to a man they shouldn't because they want his approval? This is a story that happens a lot, particularly in high school and college. Women will often do things that they don't really want to do to get the approval of some guy. Oftentimes, there are power and there are control dynamics that go along with sex. And for many people, it's just an issue of comfort. And so what's helpful is to go, okay, what are the issues underneath? What is the idol that I'm indulging in underneath the sin? And here, here's, why, here's why we need each other. Here's why you need to be in a DNA group. Here's why you need to be in a community group. Here's why we say things like you can't get everything you need out of this church if you're not in a community group. It's like because you can't see yourself by yourself. You can't know yourself by yourself. You've got to actually have some type of friendship, some type of relationships where you can talk about your sin struggles and the potential possible idols under them. Let me give you another way to get at idolatry. <clears throat> because what you see in the story of Exodus 32 is they thought the calf could save them. So here's, here's how this works. Whenever you created an idol, um, here's how an idol works. And here's, how, here's basically how you can find your idol. If you go, I don't know my idol, I'll help you to find it. Okay, <laughs> you're welcome. Um, as, uh, as you go like this, okay, what is my functional heaven, functional hell, and functional savior? So here, because the story of, if you're new, the story of Christianity is the story of heaven and hell and the savior among other things. We believe in a real hell, eternal, conscious, irreversible torment, away from the presence of God. That's hell. And it's horrible. And that's why salvation is so sweet because Jesus is our savior. He was our perfection and our punishment. He took the wrath of God in our place. He saved us from eternal damnation forever in hell. It's so sweet. And then he takes us to eternal joy in the presence of God forever. That's heaven. And so if you really believe that, what do you do? You worship your savior. Thank you, Jesus, I worship you. Why? All the songs we sing, because you saved me from hell and you're bringing me to heaven. Thank you. Now here's what we do. We create functional, fake hells, practical hells. Let me give you one, being fat. I know it might be a goof, but to be fat, to be out of shape, to be overweight, for some of you, for many Americans, that's hell. What's heaven? Being able to look great in a bathing suit. Being able to wear, you know, cool clothes and look nice, whatever. Be, being, being super attractive to people. Okay, great. So that's your heaven, being great looking, being in perfect shape. Your hell is being overweight. So what do you worship? Whatever gets you out of hell and into heaven? Is it keto? Is it CrossFit? God forbid, is it kale? <laughs> whatever it is, you worship it. It gets you from, you know, the Peloton bike. Is that will the, are you willing to spend the money? Are you willing to sacrifice for the Peloton bike? Because it might lead you out of your hell into your heaven. For other people, being single, being single and being old is hell. And understandably, people think, "Ah, well, I don't know how I would take care of myself. I don't know what I would do. I don't want to miss my childbearing years. I don't want to miss out on having a family. So, singles being hell in hell, what's heaven? Being married, having a family. So, what's our Savior? The boyfriend, the girlfriend, the fiance. And you'll see people every once in a while go, it's almost like you worship that guy or that girl. It's like, they do. That's actually what's happening, technically. And so people think, oh, you know, in America, what, what would be hell, what would be hell would be to be poor, to not have enough money to do what I want, right? Most people go, I don't want to be rich. I just don't want to have to worry about money. It's like, that's what it means to be rich. that's the definition of rich Uh, i don't want to be rich i just don't want to worry about money that's what it means to be rich okay um but so people you i don't want to be poor okay well then what you know uh, what's uh heaven heaven is being financially free and independent okay so then what i worship well it depends on what your savior is for some of you your savior is a great education right for some of your savior is a certain job for some of you your savior is the right investment in stock market it's just it's so helpful Because if you'll be honest with yourself and go, what is my heaven? What is my hell? Therefore, what is my savior? Well, here's what he says. If you'll follow me, he goes on and he tells a little bit more of the story. If you look at me at verse nine, he says, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. By the way, he's just quoting quickly Old Testament stories. So if you want to write these references down, the first one was Exodus 32. This one is Numbers 21. He says this, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. And that's another story, and that's Numbers 14. And I don't have time to get into all these, but again, with your community group, it'd be good to look in these stories and see what lessons can, we be, can be learned from these stories. He says this, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example. Again, we're reminded, second time we're told, this is an example, a countervision of what we don't want to become. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, now a big warning. How do we get into idolatry? We get into idolatry through temptation. Remember, temptation is an invitation to worship the wrong thing. Temptation is an invitation to worship the wrong thing. So he says this, therefore, in light of everything, in light of history, in light of everybody else's faults and failures and sins and struggles that we have seen, he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands Thinks he's okay, thinks he can't fall into temptation, thinks he can't shipwreck his life and his faith or her faith. Take heed lest he fall. And then we're given the most famous verse on temptation in the whole Bible. And I'm going to try to read this to you and pack it. Um, He says this No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. So again, temptation is an invitation to worship the wrong thing. Or I've heard it said this way, temptation is trying to meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way, right? And if we're just honest, you don't have to, I know we're at church, no place to be honest, but if we could just be honest for a second here. <laughs> um, temptation is very real to us. It looks different for each person. Right, because here's what happens with temptation. There's there's three things at work all the time. There's your internal desires, that's called the flesh. There's the external enemy, the world, that's called the value system of the world. And then there's the spiritual enemy, the devil. And what the devil does is he wants to use the world to to entice your flesh. That's what temptation is. And the first temptation. It's, this is such an old story. Genesis chapter three is the first temptation. What happens? Right, you know this story, right? Adam and Eve. They're uh, they're worshippers yet not, but they're not sinners yet. And then they, through temptation, they get an invitation to worship the wrong thing. And and the same thing happens every time. So so what happens with Adam and Eve story? And we'll get to this verse in a second. But what happens with Adam and Eve? The serpent comes to Adam and Eve, or really Eve in this situation, although we know Adam's right next to her. uh, And he says, um, did God really say? And by the way, this is what temptation will always do. It'll get us to question God's word, right? You've been there. You're like, is this really wrong? I mean, it seems like everybody else is doing this. I mean... Isn't, maybe the book, maybe the Bible is just outdated and archaic and oppressive. Maybe there's more freedom, quote unquote, freedom in this area than I think. Maybe the Bible is not the written down word of God. Maybe it's not the inerrant word of God. Maybe God got this part of the Bible wrong, because I have a desire that's opposite of what the scripture says here. And so we tend to question the word of God. Then we tend to question God's goodness, by the way. People often will give in to temptation because they don't feel like God's meeting their needs. And the, and the serpent, the devil knows this, so he appeals to them, hey, God knows that when you eat of this, you'll be like him. God's holding something back from you. Temptation says there's something you can get in pornography that God doesn't want you to have. There's something you can get in abusing substances that God doesn't want you to have, but it's actually really good. And really, maturity is when you, by the way, you begin to see temptation not as an escape to pleasure, but an escape from pleasure. And so there's, this is what happens in the temptations. Now, there, there are three major temptations in your life. So this is another way. Again, I'm trying to take us as deep down as I can into what the Bible says. There are three major temptations. So all of your temptations, whether it's the temptation to lie, which some of you have, or the temptation to sinful anger, or or the temptation to overeat, or who knows what it is, Um, the temptation to love money, there's three major temptations. It's the temptation to have, the temptation to be, and the temptation to feel. That's it. We're all tempted in all three of those. Some of us are going to feel one of them more based on our idols, based on our loves. The temptation to be, right? Think about that. That's status. The temptation to have, that's stuff, right? And the, the, the temptation to feel, think of mostly sex. Or you can think about it this way. The temptation to be is position. The temptation to have is possessions. And the temptation to feel is Pleasure. And if you look, if you, we'll get to this in a few minutes, but if you look at the story of Jesus, it's the exact same three temptations that he faced in the wilderness. So we'll get there. Um, so but a couple things I want to say about temptation that I think are going to be helpful. First of all, there's a difference between, and I want you to have this in your mind and understand it. There's a difference between temptation and sin, right? Because Jesus, it says, was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. So there's a difference between being tempted to do something and actually engaging in it. Now this is helpful because what happens with a lot of people is they feel a temptation, and then they feel bad and so they just give in to the sin. So like, no, no, you can actually resist temptation. And here's, here's actually, I think, one of the most helpful things is what if we looked at temptation as just as much an opportunity to do the right thing as to do the wrong thing? I mean, oftentimes, right? What do we look? At? We look at temptation as an opportunity to do the wrong thing? No one's here. I'm on vacation. No, I've got extra money. I've got, no one will find out. And it, it, we often look at temptation as an opportunity to do the wrong thing. I had someone come up to me after the Saturday night service last night. And they basically said, hey, I'm about to head on a business trip. I've been really, really nervous about it because I'm going to be alone for a couple of days. They said, thank you for the thought that I'm going on this trip with is, this trip is an opportunity for me to do the right thing. I mean, think about it. You're, you're tempted to look at something you shouldn't. It's like, well, what about you go, Man, all right, this framework, this is an opportunity to do the right thing. This is an opportunity to feel a different type of pleasure. It would be the pleasure of obedience. It would be the pleasure of saying no to sin and yes to Christ. So that's the first thing I want to talk about temptation. Here's the second thing about temptation. Well, let's look at, we'll actually go verse by verse through it and see it. Um, Look at me at um, verse 13, part one. He says this, no temptation has overtaken you. So temptation hasn't overtaken you, but it always wants to take from you but that's a good way to think about temptation. Uh, he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He, uh, he says this, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So the first thing he says is, hey, all of the temptation that you're experiencing, somebody else at some time has experienced it. Don't believe the lie that what I'm experiencing is unique. That nobody else has this struggle. First of all, that respectfully, that's a very prideful thought. It's like, there are 7 billion people on earth. People have, our our, our Christian brothers and sisters have been living for 2,000 years. We have 2,000 years of ancestors uh, who've tried to live this Christian faith out. Believe me, everybody, or there's been somebody, many people actually, who've struggled with what you struggle with. And so what Paul wants to say is, when it comes to temptation, you're not a victim. You can actually say no to sin. You're not powerless. Now, this is only for Christians. If you're a non-Christian, you can't say no to sin ultimately. You know, in fact, this happens all the time. But, you know, you'll be talking to somebody, and they'll be they'll be talking about their teenage son or daughter, and they'll be like, oh, I, just, you know, he's dating a non-Christian, and uh, he's not interested in church, and he's not interested in youth group, and he doesn't want to read his Bible, and I feel like he's hiding things from me, and I just don't get it, and I don't, you know, I don't know why he doesn't want to come to church. It's like, and I, I say it more nicely than this, but it's like, he's not a Christian. Get it? That's the issue. It's like, I don't understand why he wants to date this non-Christian girl, and why he cares more about athletics, and why he doesn't want to come to youth group. It's like, I know why, and if you're honest, so do you. He's not a believer. This is a particularly hard conversation to have with wives who realize they married unbelievers, and they often will just break down in my office realizing it. He doesn't lead our family. He doesn't want to talk about Christ. He says he's bored at church. He doesn't want to serve. He doesn't want to get in a community group. And you guys sit down and go, he's not a Christian. You say it a lot nicer than that, you know. <laughs> but the, but the, and then they realize because then they have to realize, oh, I'm the kind of person who married a non-Christian. Why did I do that? And so, but he, what he's saying is, our idols uh, that that we can ultimately say no to temptation. But here's how we do it. He tells us, look at this. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So he said, there's always a way out of temptation. I I had a guy tell me one time, he said he was working with an alcoholic. And he said to the alcoholic, he said, describe to me what it feels like to want to take a drink. And you can't take a drink. And the alcoholic said, he said, what it feels like is like you're 15 feet underwater in a pool. And you've been underwater in that pool for about a minute. And you feel like you, you're you feeling all of the pressure and you feel like you have to come up for air. And I thought, that's a great illustration of all temptation. At some level, what we're looking for is we're looking for an escape. We're looking for a release. We're looking for a way to indulge. And he's saying, God has provided, God has always provided a way of escape. Now, he provides it. He doesn't push it on you. He doesn't press it on you. He doesn't force it. But there's always a way of escape. And, and I, I just want to ask you, I mean, obviously I don't answer out loud, but think about this. I mean, do you take the way of escape? And, and the way of escape is not a magical door that appears in the middle of temptation that you can leave. <laughs> the way of escape, honestly, is most people, I know what the way of escape is for 99% of people. It's being meaningfully connected in a church to other Christians and being honest. That's the way of escape. And so many people go, you're in temptation, you go, what's the way of escape? Well, you should have not lied about this. You should have been honest about this. I mean, I can tell you, the way of escape for many of you is you can't handle this by yourself. The way of escape is to let one or two people in to confess the sin and ask for help. That's the way of escape. Let me encourage you. I was talking to someone last night and they're telling me about somebody that they're helping with the sin struggle. And I said, this is awesome. You're the way of escape for that person. So some of you need to realize that, that you need to feel the healthy responsibility that you might be the way of escape to help your brother or sister in Christ say no to some sin and say yes to obedience. And so he says, there's always a way of escape. And then look at this. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He says this, um, verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So he goes, this is interesting. He goes, (laughs) idolatry, temptation, idolatry. Idolatry, temptation, idolatry. Why? Because temptation is always an invitation to worship the wrong things. And so he wants to go back to idolatry and says we need to flee it. Now, how do we flee it? We flee it with a superior passion to worship Christ. There, there's a guy named Thomas Chalmers. He wrote a book, and it was it's called The Explosive, I think it's called something like the explosive power of a superior affection. And his whole idea is that basically for you to say no to sin, for you to say no to worshiping other things, you have to have something so much bigger and so much better to worship. And it has to be Christ. It has to be Jesus Christ. Now, listen, Jesus Christ is the great example for us of how to fight sin and how to fight temptation. Because remember, that in, the, in this story, Paul says, hey, you're just like Israel. And he says, Israel went through, remember, they, they went through the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness, and they failed the temptation in the wilderness, Well, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you read the book of Matthew, and Matthew was written to the Jews to understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you go to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter three, what happens is Jesus is baptized. Where does Jesus go immediately after he goes through water? He goes into the wilderness. You go, wait a second. Why does Jesus, why doesn't the devil just come to him? Why does Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days? Because he's reliving what. Israel failed to do, Jesus is doing. So he goes, he's tempted by the serpent, by the devil in the wilderness. What are his three temptations? The temptation to have, the temptation to be, and the temptation to feel, right? What was the temptation to feel? Eat food after not eating for 40 days. That's a massive temptation to feel. What does Jesus do? He fights temptation with the word of God. What's the second temptation? The temptation to be. You know, hey, why don't you throw yourself down and show, and then the angels will, will, will rescue you and everyone will see that you're the son of God. I'm not going to give in to the temptation to be. Okay, fine. Why don't you worship me, idolatry, and I'll give you everything. I'll give you all the possessions of the world, the temptation to have. Jesus says no to all of those temptations for us. And then Jesus lives a perfect life. He heads to the cross. And I don't have time to get into this at length, but Jesus had to fight multiple temptations on his way to the cross. His own disciples, Peter, told him not to go. He had to fight his internal desires. He had to pray about it. He had to say no to the temptation to not go to the cross. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and he pays the penalty for our sins. He is our savior that rescues us from hell and brings us to heaven and now gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to live for him. So here's what I want you to hear as we close, that with every temptation in your life, there's way more at stake than what you think. Please hear me say that. You think you're just fooling around with pornography. You think you just drink a little bit too much. You think you just kind of have an anger problem. You just think you're kind of a workaholic. I'm telling you from scripture, not from, from scripture, that there's always way more at stake in every temptation than you think because what happens is you end up staying in the wilderness, guys, right? Temptation got our first parents kicked out of the garden and it got the first church, Israel, kept in the wilderness. And guys, there's too much ministry. There's too much mission to be done in your family, in your neighborhood, and in our city for you to stay stuck in the same temptations and the same false idols that you are worshiping. Let me ask you this question. What do you have to show for all of your, all the temptation you've given into? Just think about it. What do you have to show? What good came out of all the temptation that you've given into? Are you a happier person because you gave into it? No. Do you not have less integrity because of the temptation you've given into? Do you not have more secrets? Don't, do you have lack of honesty, lack of transparency, lack of authenticity? Certain things you can't talk to your spouse about because of temptations that you've given into. Don't you have less joy, a less clear conscience? There's whole whole areas that you can't disciple people in or bring up because you struggle with them yourself and you don't want to change. For some of you, I mean, you've given it a temptation. It's actually affected your mental and physical health, the amount of it. Well, I came here today to tell you that Christ loves to set people free. Jesus, in his prayer that he gave the church, he said, Hey, would you pray this prayer? He said, And I'm going to ask you to pray this with me as we close together. He said, Will you pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation? And I just want to ask you this, honestly, from your heart, can you pray that prayer? Or do you feel like that's a prayer I don't really want to pray? I kind of like being led into temptation. There's always more at stake with every one of your temptations than what you think. Let's pray together. Lord, we just come and we admit our idols, Lord. John Calvin, that great theologian, he said that every human heart is an idol factory. Our idols often will change as we get older, (laughs) as we get a career or we get a family or we get money or we get sick. Who knows? We have certain struggles. We live in different places. We have different idols, Lord. I pray that we would see you, Jesus, as the great savior who saves us from a real hell and brings us to a real heaven, and we worship you. Lord, I pray that we would have a right view of temptation, that we would see that temptation is always an invitation to worship the wrong thing, Lord. Lord, help us right now. We just wanna take a moment, and we just wanna pray. Lord, lead me not into temptation. I wanna ask you right now to just tell the Lord what leads you into temptation. Just in your heart, is it a person? Is it a relationship? Is it being alone? Is it living alone? What leads you into temptation? And I want you just to admit to yourself and to the Lord right now, what is the way of escape? Because I bet you know it. Is it telling someone, ask for the courage to take the next step, to take the way of escape? Because there's so much that God wants to do in you and so much that God wants to do through you. We don't want to stay in the wilderness. We want to move into the promised land. We pray this in Jesus' name.